hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestall. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 172, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm just navigating the continuing streams of bullshit that invade the paranormal on top of liars pretending to be responsible for UFO incidents. We've also got the Dogman Puppeteer scandal that broke earlier this week. It's all been happening, Brennan. I can't keep up anymore. I must I must quickly know about the Dogman Puppeteer because <laughs> that Dogman Puppeteer sounds like a sweet like 2000s band name. You know, like mm. them and Incubus could be on a double bill. <laughs> Live in Wisconsin. With the Brian Jonestown massacre opening. <laughs> so, this image began circulating at the beginning of the week of this very strange creature looking through somebody's window. And obviously, despite the fact it didn't look anything like a dog, it was a dog man, apparently. To some people, at least we've got a picture of something for a change. <laughs> um, however, very quickly, it seemed that all was not what it may have originally seemed. I'm shocked. And it was a gentleman. Uh, it is shocking. A gentleman who was a professional puppeteer, very talented man, who had decided to try and raise his profile, shall we say by claiming that he'd had an encounter with the cryptid, only for lots of other people to go back through his Twitter profile and notice this looked very similar to a puppet he'd been showing off last year. Lo and behold, he quickly began to backtrack, but not before being called every name under the sun. And yet, there are still those (laughs) deluded fools who are saying, well, he's clearly been got to. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They, the ubiquitous they, got to him. It doesn't even look like a dogman, right? It looks like some kind of eagly dinosaur thing. So I actually know what picture you're talking about now. I, I, it clicked in my mind. I've, I, I did see it. And you know what it looked like? I won't say which, but you and I were talking about a really shit werewolf film off air a couple of weeks back. And uh, that's, <laughs> Which one? Well, that's, I, I won't say it on the show because I don't want to shame them. But <laughs> just it was just excruciating. It was the worst kind of werewolf garbage. I turned it off. Their mask still looked better than that photo. Mm. It's unreal. Unbelievable. I've even seen people today talking about it. And despite the fact that I've obviously shat on it from a great height <laughs> during the comments, <laughs> politely, of course. Oh, naturally. People are still going, yeah, it's a sheep, that. Looks, n- what? It looks less like a sheep than a werewolf. What are, you go- what are you going on about? It looks like Animal from the Muppets after a meth bender. Yeah. Or an extra from Meet the Feebles, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's giving it too much credit. <laughs> yeah, other than that, I'm fine. I just got back from uh, from Revelstoke from my sister's wedding, which was really nice. Ooh. It was a beautiful ceremony, lovely reception. Everyone looked great. It was just, it was a really nice time. High strangeness-wise, you know, I hadn't been to Revelstoke in two years. Wasn't really much going on, but there was a couple little things I wanted to share with you that have mm. happened before and after that. So the first thing, and this is probably nothing, just one of those little things that you notice. But uh, we stayed at my aunt's house, and my aunt has uh, really been through it over the last couple of years. I won't get into the specifics, but she was quite ill. We almost lost her several times during the pandemic, uh, not from COVID, but actually from an unrelated disease. 
that went undiagnosed for the better part of a year. And so this was our first time staying with her probably since 2019. And mm. it was really nice. It was really nice to reconnect. Yeah, it just, it was a really enjoyable trip, which I don't usually say about trips to Revelstoke. Usually I find them quite stressful, but this was, this was just very, very pleasant the whole time. The first night we were all there staying at my aunt's place, we were in the spare room, which is adjacent to her room. All of us woke up at 3.30 in the morning. Oh. Yeah, we all woke up. We, felt, we didn't realize it at the time, but afterwards we realized we all woke up and couldn't get back to sleep for quite a while. And then, yeah, just nothing. Uh, I eventually passed out close to four. I think Nick passed out about the same. And, uh, you know, could, could be nothing, but it was, I felt it was noteworthy that we all, you know, mm. again, woke up around that time. Because her, her house, I think, is an active place. You know, I mean, she's right mm. on the river. The river's said to be very powerful. And that actually leads me to something else. So we rented a car to drive to Relstoke and we had Sunday to ourselves, Nick and I. So we went for a drive, hadn't really had an opportunity to do this because we, we were only really there for a couple of days and it was a lot of focused wedding time. Hmm. But they've uh, paved the road down south of town quite a ways, much further than they ever had before. And so we, we took it all the way down. Eventually, you know, we, we're driving on the dirt road. Uh, when the river's low enough, you can drive out onto what they call the flats and there are old roads left there. People go, you know, mud bogging down in the flats or they do other things down there. Because, mm. but so, so I'm told, so I'm told. I certainly never got to do any of those things when I lived in Revelstoke, but uh, you know, <laughs> people who have more fun than me have told me about this. If you, if you see a Subaru uh, with a mattress in the back, you know, turn your, turn, avert your gaze. But um, yeah, anyways, so I, now bear in mind, I haven't been south of town in a long time because that is, you know, the research I've done for the book, especially some stuff that came to light in between the first and second editions really kind of has me thinking that there is something in that area that is not always appreciative of company. So we're, we're driving down there. It was, it was overcast, but the river was so low. You could easily drive it onto the flats. And we had actually, through a series of circumstances I won't bore you with, we had uh, got a, a, an SUV instead of a sedan. So we could have actually gone down there with, with ease. And I started pulling off the road to go down to the flats because I wanted to go look at the, the remains of the old ferry terminal that's out there. But just as I'm pulling off the road, I got this very strong feeling that we should not go any further. And it was confusing because to, to look ahead of us, though the sky was gray, the road was clear. And there's a little bit of mud, but nothing that the vehicle couldn't handle. But there was just this overarching sense of don't go any further. It looks clear, but don't go any further. And because I'm dumb, I ignored it for a moment and started going down the hill. But I again got this very strong, just nope don't do that. So, okay. Backed up, told Nick, I said, I just have a feeling like we shouldn't do this. She's like, that's fine. So we backed up, started going back towards town to go see some family. And dude, it was like someone pulled the plug on my energy. The second we, we left, it was like, I, I felt like I'd run a marathon. Like not, mm -hmm. like, not like my heart was pounding or anything, but just all of a sudden I had zero get up and go. Nothing. I, mm -hmm. I was so tired. It was a struggle to keep my eyes open. And it's almost like something, like it's almost like keeping myself away or out of whatever was happening down in that riverbed was so taxing that it just, it took all of my available resources. And I kind of, I kind of shudder to think what would have happened if I'd kept going. Cause it wouldn't have been anything obvious, right? We're not going to get like hit by a landslide or something, but I think it would have had a very real physical toll. And I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, that we didn't pursue it. For our listeners out there, this episode is going to be a return to first responders. 
I'm really excited. This is something I've been looking at doing for years. I think our first, our original first responders episode was 40 something. So it's been 130 episodes in in the making. And we had uh, an email from from someone who's an officer in a major city. Uh, They've asked to remain anonymous, but they had a pretty cool story. And then we had another one as well. So I thought, well, let's build that out. So we have two listener stories plus about four or five sort of researched stories online of encounters of police and firefighter encounters with the paranormal and one really creepy story of a dispatcher hearing something that they cannot explain. So I'm, I'm very excited to get there. But before we do that, we got to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the morning workout before our recording session, which is to say you energize us and make us excited for the thing that is to come. And really, guys, we couldn't do this without our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers. Your support is what allows us to continue. You pay my salary. You allow me to do this at the level that I do this. And so we are both deeply, deeply appreciative. And while we'd like to thank all our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers, right now we're going to thank our latest ones. They are... Jen Burgos. Millie Mills. Alison Wright. Again, thank you, thank you, thank you. None of this would be possible without you, and so we want you to know how deeply we appreciate your support. And while times are tough, I get it, not everyone has the money it takes to give us money. But if you do, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. Or you can subscribe via your Apple Podcasts app, by signing up to GST Premium. Both those things get you access not only to the ad-free feed I mentioned, but you also get access to our bonus episodes, which are bonus conversations between me and Paul, sometimes as long as an hour, sometimes more, sometimes they are longer than the episodes themselves. It has happened. You also get access to Host Adventures, which is a weekly or bi-weekly show, depending, uh, where I kind of let you in on what's going on with my life, yak about various subjects, and there's lots of other cool stuff as well. Live shows, sunken library, all kinds of cool stuff. And you can get all that at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or by signing up to GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, if you sign up via Apple Podcasts and you want a shout out, forward your confirmation to ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Two more things. First off, I can't believe I forgot to mention this. I want to welcome a new member of the team. Tanya Downing has come on board to help us with editing. She has been uh, training up over the last month or so, and we are delighted to have her as part of the team. So again, thank you to Tanya Downing, who has now come on board as an editor with us. Woo! Yeah. And finally, of course, thanks to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is a film journalist and musician out of Central California. You can find his projects online as Rainy Days for Ghosts and Street Witch, both of which are streaming courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, the Ghost Story Guys house label. And you can find more information, including links to Jerry's various projects, in the show notes or at nightharvestrecordings.com. All right, now it's time to take a quick break and be back with our second volume of First Responder Stories. The Piano, from Anonymous. I'm a police officer in a large city. One night, my partner, who's also into the paranormal, 
and I were dispatched to a call for a break and enter. The owner had come home after being away for a few days and thought that someone had broken into their house. When we arrived, the owner told us they had come home and everything seemed to be fine until they sat at their piano to play and noticed that a few of the keys seemed to be off. They removed all of the items off the top of the lid and noticed that some of the hammers had been cut. The weird thing was that the wood holding the hammers had been cut far down past the strings and at a strange angle. The cabinet where all this was contained was really tight and we could not think of a way to cut anything that cleanly and that far down without damaging anything else. Not only that, but there was a good layer of dust on the piano, so if someone had done it, they would have had to put everything back in exactly the right place as the dust didn't show the slightest irregularity in the edges. There were no signs of forced entry to any of the doors or windows, and there was undisturbed snow all around the house. The only footprints were to the front door, and the lock and door were solid and intact. No one else had a key to the house, and nothing had been taken or moved. My partner, who was a music buff, started asking about the piano. Turned out it was an antique that the owner had picked up at a surprisingly low price. But then they started going on about how weird things had begun happening once they brought it home. By the time we were done talking, my partner had pretty much convinced the owner to have the piano exercised. After we left, my partner and I had both commented there was just something about the piano. It held your attention as soon as you walked in the door, and we couldn't stop looking at it while we were there. We had to notify a supervisor about the call, but we didn't tell them that we thought there was an issue with the piano. On his own, he said it sounded like the owner had a ghost in their place. I have a few other stories, some work-related and some not, if you're interested. Keep up the good work. And thank you, Anonymous. I've replied separately, but yes, we're very interested. Uh, any and all stories from your neck of the woods would be greatly uh, appreciated. Again, I'm always fascinated by, by first responder stories, Paul, just because they deal with people at a level most of us don't. And I think they see more of the world than most of us. Oh, absolutely. And they're usually on high alert and have to deal with some very challenging situations. So when they do encounter strange things, I, I do take them with um, a lot more veracity than perhaps some other witnesses for whatever reason. Maybe that's some kind of bias. I'm not sure. The whole thing about having the piano exercised. I just saw The Nun 2 the other night. I really liked The Nun. I was a big fan of that movie. But The Nun 2... We won't, we won't spend too much time on it. I don't like to be negative. I like the first half, we'll say. But it ends, as so many of these movies do, with a kind of exorcism. And I really just think we have hit the maximum in our culture for exorcist stories. Like, I don't think it's scary anymore. And I, I just, I don't think there's enough collective belief in the power of exorcism to make that concept scary on screen. I feel like the only other way you can make that work is if you do, there was a film that was in development for a while called Exorcism at Crooked Lake. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of that was the exorcism is right at the beginning of the film because the writer recognized that having that be the climax of your film, it, it just, it's been done so many times yep. that it, it has no punch. So while I don't disagree with the partner in that such a thing might be necessary, I always think when I think like exorcism, I specifically think Catholic exorcism. I feel like that's, that's a little bit like, uh, uh, have you ever seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre when they try to get Grandpa to kill the little the, the teenager, yes. and they just keep putting the hammer in his hand, and it just yeah it keeps like flopping over and falling out. I feel like that's kind of the power of exorcism at this point. <laughs> they should always follow the solution that the Wim family 
of Hanley in London in the 60s dealt with their haunted piano. I, I must know. That's a, one of the, my favourite haunted piano stories was there. A uh, young lady decided that she took a fancy to learning the piano, so her family decided to uh, shop around in the uh, local areas of, of, of London looking for a, for a good piano to get, and they, they stumbled across one in a, uh, in a music shop that was specialised in house clearances. And so they picked up this lovely piano, fetched it home for their daughter and placed it in their back parlour. In the old days, it was just a normal terraced house. This is 1968, I think it was. So it's not, you know, it's not a long time ago, really. And uh, it's one of those where um, as soon as they got the piano in, strange things began to happen. Like the cooker kept turning on and people go, oh, who's done that? Oh, aren't we silly? Fire kept getting turned on. Oh, aren't we silly? Forgetting about that. They kept finding money in strange places and items and decorations and things would be removed from the walls and things were just being moved around and it was just, oh, well, nothing's happening here. No, no. So they decided after, after a while that they were going to redecorate. So they moved the piano out of the parlour and put it in the front room. At the same time, the family, apart from the son, decided that they were going to go away for the weekend. The son was staying there because I think he was about to join the army, so he couldn't go with them, I think, if I remember correctly. So he stayed the weekend on his own in their house, and he spent a sleepless two nights because on both nights, a solitary note was repeatedly played on the piano on both nights. Just a ding... Ding. Yeah. Throughout both nights. So he came back and he told his parents and they went, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, nothing's happening here. Anyway, stuff carried on. <laughs> you know, fire kept being left on. Things kept moving about. Yeah. It kind of reached a crescendo where the daughter was attacked in bed by something grabbing hold of her throat and throttling her whilst Jesus the curtains Christ. billowed and everything. And the father, despite the fact that he'd spent six months saying there was absolutely nothing going on, dragged the piano into the back garden, chopped it up and set it on fire. <laughs> now that's what I'm talking about. This is, this is how you respond to paranormal yes. activity. Ghosts only push us around because they think they can. Establish dominance. But there's an there's a, uh, epilogue to this. Oh shit, of course there is. So they went to the shop afterwards and didn't sort of chastise this man. They said, why, why on earth have you sent, sold as a, a satanic piano man? What's wrong with you? We've got young children in the house. No, they simply inquired, you know, where, where did this piano come from? And apparently it was from a local man who loved playing the piano and he'd passed away. And so his sisters, I think they were, had taken ownership of the piano and had had it three weeks and gave it away. And as he bought it off them, one of the sisters turned to the other one and said, do you think this will be an end to all the trouble now? Oh, son of a bitch. That's the story of the haunted piano in Middlesex in the late 60s. So, uh, Anonymous, should you ever meet this person again, tell them they got off lucky. (laughs) Yes, they didn't get throttled. Also, I think the area I'm moving to is like Middlesex. The part of Ontario I'm moving to is called Middlesex, which is kind of funny. It's a sign. Telling you. If you move into Hanwell Street, you're in trouble, son. (laughs) Hamilton, actually. Oh, oh, it's quite close. The Warehouse from Ariel. So on a Saturday night last August, my girlfriend's mum wanted to have a family barbecue. Little did I know that Bob, 
the best friend of my girlfriend's cousin was coming over and that he's a police officer for the NYPD. He's now high-ranking and has worked in a bunch of the boroughs, so after a putting a few years, he can finally work on Staten Island, where he now lives and knows the area. Bob isn't his real name, just to be clear. We were all having fun in the pool, hammering some brewskis and downing burgers and dogs. Somehow, Bob was being, you know, your typical cop who's not on the job and busting out some badass stories. I'm loving all this because at one point in my life, I wanted to be a cop. So everyone went quiet and Bob started by explaining that sometimes he and his partner would get a call to check out the warehouses on the island to clear them out. That means they see if people who aren't supposed to be there are hanging around. But Bob and his partner are very down-to-earth guys. Bob has seen some things and been around some things, so he explained that they do just that, just to make sure there's no dealers there or anyone else shooting up. Bob and his partner don't call in the petty stuff, like if there are just homeless people staying there, especially during the cold weather. On this particular night, they were going floor by floor, seeing if there was anything unusual. And on the last floor, when they were just about to leave, Bob said, from out of nowhere, a homeless man just appeared, screaming and yelling out in agony, and then vanished again. A few days later, he said that a homeless man had indeed been found dead there. Whether that was due to the cold at the time, or maybe him having an illness that he couldn't get help for. But I think he appeared like that, screaming and yelling, because he didn't realise he was dead. Ariel, thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's tragic, but it's also very, very interesting. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of a story once told on Art Bell. And I can't remember if that was from a, a cop who saw a guy bent over somebody who was dead on the floor shouting at them. And as the person approached, he realized that the person stood above the corpse shouting was the corpse. It was the same person. And then he just looked saw them and just went poof disappeared Oof. that'll settle you down yeah no kidding right <laughs> who wasn't was it lauren coleman who did a book on police stories a few years back or lauren christensen there was a they did a oh. whole book i adapted one of the stories for the first first responder episode so i guess this would be about four years ago now mm. i'm not sure mm. i know i've i did a couple of episodes on on some Police stories from over here with Andy Gilbert, who was a former police officer who wrote Paranormal Police 1 and 2. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I should read those. I have not read those yet. Back in, back in my early days. And um, brilliant. Some of the stories there, you know, like we were saying, you've got to, when a trained observer tells you they've seen something that they can't explain, it, it, it takes it away. There's a couple of them that are just particularly really creepy. You know? Oh, yeah. A haunted telephone is one of my favorites, I think. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm always down for technology stories. We've got one like that coming up at the end of the dispatcher story. I'm always down for that. What, what's the, is that the one, the, tele, the fellow telephone that keeps calling? Yeah, and it's not there. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and they keep getting a call from a signal box that was demolished 20 years before. Right. So there's no phone there. Yeah. But it keeps ringing them. <laughs> someone somewhere needs some help. <laughs> Probably a few of them. Sadly so. I was thinking about that, you know, in that story, like the homeless guy. I remember, you know, because people are really quick to judge, right? And, and even I have been in past, you know, like Victoria, mm -hmm. I think like everywhere, you know, with the cost of living going up the way it is, there are a lot more people who are unhoused. Yeah. 
And, you know, we, we actually ran an ad for LA Neighbors for Neighbors uh, last year. It wasn't an ad. We gave it to them for free, but it was like, you know, they do a lot of good work for people in Los Angeles who are unhoused. And again, that's an increasing population. And I, I think we do judge folks in those circumstances and, and it's a shame. Uh, like, I, I understand why we do, but I was thinking how easy it is nowadays to end up in that place. I, I remember actually when I was hitchhiking, it really drove this home. You know, this is mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago now, but uh, actually it was 20 years ago now. But, you know, I, like, I, I've got friends and family, and at the time I had a lot of friends, you know, and a lot more of my family was alive. And I just hitchhiked because it was, you know, I didn't have a driver's license and the bus sucked. So I was, oh, I'll just do this. I was also kind of depressed. So I was a little bit like holding my hand over the flame to see whether or not it hurt. You know, the secret is not minding, apparently. But <laughs> anyways, I was doing this and it was really insightful for me to, to watch strangers and how they treated me. Because again, I had my history and I had, I, there were people who loved me, people who cared about me. But to these people, I was just a figure by the side of the road and they come with their own assumptions. And the number of dirty looks I would get or mockery I would get was really surprising at first. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting it. And then I realized, yeah, people just, we look at other people, especially people who we think as, you know, they're lesser or disadvantaged. And we just have this, these host of assumptions we make about them. And they're largely, you know, not true. They're bullshit. We just, we're pulling them out of our ass, right? Because I think we want to imagine that we're, we're not those people. Like we could never be those people. Like I would never hitchhike. I own a car. I don't have to hitchhike. I would never be homeless. Uh, But it's shocking how in the modern world, how close we all are to those situations. And I remember digging through dumpsters, you know, for cardboard for signs, uh, like to write where I was going. And again, people would look at you and I would, you know, I always got cleaned up before I would hitchhike. And it wasn't like I was sleeping in the ditch or anything, you know, I was sleeping at someone's house and then just walking out to the highway. But again, just the, the assumptions in their eyes and the dehumanization. I can't tell you how many tourists videotaped me as they were going past. Like this is literal camcorder. So it it was actual tape. But just videotape me going past because I was just like, oh, n- there's a novelty. It was like I was a, a natural, you know, a feature of the natural world. And no thought that maybe this person doesn't want to be videotaped. Nope. Don't give a shit. That person does not exist as a person. And it was, it was just very eye-opening for me. Yeah. Yeah. Poverty porn. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Mm. And again, I wasn't poor. I just, I mean, I was poor. You know, like I, you know, I had a shitty job, but I mean, I wasn't like destitute. I just didn't own a vehicle. But doesn't yeah. matter. Again, it's just all those built-in assumptions. Yeah, there was a YouTuber who turned up in Sheffield the other week to go to one of our very notorious areas and uh, seemed very upset that uh, nobody wanted to tell him how shit it was and kept telling him to F off. <laughs> and he seemed to find, he seemed to be extremely put out by the fact that these people didn't want to engage him telling, talking about how shit they lived with him was and to... Uh, Tell him basically if he didn't leave very quickly, he would probably find himself enjoying hospital food for a week or two. <laughs> and so he it, seemed it, to find that deeply offensive that these people he couldn't insult weren't playing along. How weird. So is, is that his thing? He just. Yes. Does poverty, he goes to bad places and just has people he lament goes to their lives? holes in the UK to tell everybody else how shit this particular area is and how these people are all bastards. That is gross. It is. It is. 
comedy porn. You look at every, I would imagine, I don't know what it's like in, in North America. We have shows over here going on about, all, oh, look at all these people on benefits, aren't they? Pathetic. And they try and say, oh, well, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at these people and trying to humanise them and, and get their stories out to a wider public. No, you're not. If you're doing that, why are you calling this show Benefit Street? Oh, wow. You know, why are you laughing at these people scraping five quid together so they can get food or asking them, why, why do you smoke if you've got no money? Well, when you've got nothing, you take simple pleasures in life. Yeah. And for some people, that's having a drink or having a smoke or watching telly. Yeah, I won't get into it here because a person might listen to the show, but I got into an argument with a friend of mine about that once. And they really got upset once because, you know, they said, well, I, these people are told, if you don't stop smoking, you're going to die. And they mm-hmm. keep smoking. So I have no sympathy for them. You know, they know what's coming. And I, and I was trying to explain to this person, it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. You know, th- this person has never done a drug. They've never taken a drink. And so they don't have, I think, the perspective you need in order to make that call. Because, you know, as you and I both know, addiction is a complex thing. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, cigarettes—it's—it's it's an addiction. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to stop it, the, you have to. There are so many triggers you have to address before you can do that. You can't just stop. It yeah. doesn't. I mean, you can. It's—it's it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. And it, there's a, a web of emotional triggers. On the subject of of like the benefit shaming, I mean, we—I don't think we have TV shows specifically where we do it, but I know it—it's definitely done. Uh, there was a period in time when I was a kid. When my mom, she worked for the same store for about 20 years and they laid her off at Christmas one year. New owners took it over and, and laid her off. Bastards. So we, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Who, who took guys. it over? Ebenezer Scrooge? Uh, right? No, no argument here, man. No, those guys. No were... turkey for you, woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come here so I can kick you in the groin. <laughs> no, it was, it was literally like the, like the Grinch had dropped in like John Matrix and just started <laughs> snapping the necks of all the good times. It was, it was a rough Christmas. So we had to go on welfare for a little while. We had to go on benefits. Mm-hmm. And the woman who, and my mom's a very hardworking person, very proud person, always worked very hard, too hard. Uh, I may have picked up some of these, these working habits from her. So she didn't want to go on benefits, but we, we had to. And it wasn't for long. I think we were only on there for a few months. But the woman who was her intake officer made her feel so much less than human it was disgusting. Just spoke to her like she was trash. And again, this is someone who's held down the same job for 20 years, busted her hump, raised two kids essentially by herself. You know, my dad was gone when I was seven and good riddance. She did all this herself. And just because, as I say, you know, the bastard son of the Grinch and Ebenezer Scrooge had, had ridden into town on a carriage made of darkness and shit. She didn't have a job. But this woman just, no, you're trash. And the worst thing was, eventually my mom got a job at the hospital, um, and then we opened the store a few years after that, about 10 years, something like that. I, time kind of lost all meaning. But this woman then would come in, and because my mom was now a business owner, this woman would try and kiss her ass. And then she threw acid in her face and said, get out of my shop. Oh, you ruined the end of my story. Oh. No, we're Italian. <laughs> we hexed their family for 100 generations. <laughs> we're, I've been yeah. on doll. I don't give a shit. You know, when I was a kid growing up, why would, why would I work 40 hours a week for two pound a week less than I got by not working? Hey, I why, don't disagree. Why would I do that? You want, yeah. me to, you want me to get a job, pay me more than I get for not having a job. I love how the solution for that in the modern era has become 
not pay people more for their work, but give them fewer benefits. Yes. Let's strip everybody of their dignity until they're so desperate they'll put up with any old shit. Or they'll start podcasts. <laughs> or they'll pretend to see demons. That's it. Take away the benefits. Next thing you know, they're putting dogman puppets in the windows, folks. <laughs> the Forest Cult. My Uncle Jamie worked as a cop in a small town in New Zealand. It was a quiet place with the usual amount of small town crime domestic violence, break and enters, property damage. Nothing particularly remarkable ever happened within city limits. Outside the city limits, however, something strange is happening and it eventually convinced him to leave the department entirely. The police station in Jamie's small town often gets reports from local hunters and farmers about hooded figures walking around the forest in groups. They're never doing anything obviously threatening, but everyone who sees them becomes uneasy and eventually ends up calling it in. In addition to seeing the figures themselves, locals who venture out into the forest will sometimes find ceremonial or ritual sites, and we're talking way out there, sometimes as much as 15 kilometers deep into thick brush. It was around 10 years ago Jamie responded to the call which would ultimately lead to his resignation. It was 2 in the morning, in the middle of his shift, when dispatch sent him out to a rural property outside of town. When he got there, the farmer who had made the call told Jamie that he had seen groups of these hooded men walking up and down the tree line near his property. They had been carrying torches and seemed to be placing objects. The farmer couldn't say exactly what those objects were, but the whole experience was frightening his family and disturbing his animals. Jamie could see the torchlight's glow at the edge of the forest and decided he should call for backup just in case. After radioing into dispatch, he walked across the field to find a group of eight men wearing what appeared to be robes and carrying literal torches. Jamie identified himself as a peace officer, but while the men turned to observe him, they didn't acknowledge him in any other way. They simply stood there, torches in hand, watching him. Jamie was, and is, a big guy who can get physical when he needs to, but it's very much a last resort. And besides, he says when telling this story, eight on one is a fight you only win in the movies. According to Jamie, they didn't so much as move a muscle. It was then a creeping fear set in, and he suddenly regretted not waiting till his backup had arrived. It was shortly after this fear manifested itself that the strangest thing happened. Jamie says one of the men began speaking to him in a way he describes as seductive. He cannot recall what the man said to him, just that he convinced my uncle to let them walk away without providing any identifying information. All Jamie remembers is the men fading out slightly, and then he came to with his backup trying to get his attention. Up to ten minutes had lapsed, but he has no memory of what happened or where the men went. Jamie's not a believer in the supernatural or the paranormal or anything like that, or so he claims. But he does believe the men somehow hypnotized or drugged him that night. The experience got into his head, and after a few more months on the job, he resigned without warning and became a commercial fisherman. So far as we know, those calls still come into the station, but if anyone else has been similarly affected, they've kept it to themselves. Yeah, New Zealand. Strange place. Yeah, I, to be honest, I have not heard many stories from New Zealand. Mm. You may be in luck then, in the future. Oh, really? Mm. I'm, I'm hopefully going to be doing an episode on some haunted locations in New Zealand. Hopefully Sweet. this side of Christmas. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I'm always interested in kind of cult stories. I don't know why. 
Mm. I, I think because there's that, you know, the sort of the movie part of me that thinks like a you know, true detective and, and all these shows where there's like a secret cult kind of getting up to shit. Although in this case, cult. I got to say, if they've been getting these calls for 10 years, whatever this cult is getting up to, they're not very good at it. <laughs> they're not very secretive. That too. Yeah, yeah. We're just, oh, they're back. Boy, oh, they're just chanting and hypnotizing <laughs> dudes. And, you know, it's just a men's club. They're just getting really good at talking bullshit. And the cops just, their eyes glaze over. They're going to talk to you about IPAs or home brewing or something. Like, oh, Jesus, no, hard pass. Glaze out. Yes, things were a lot better in the Hellfire Club's day. I'm telling you, you know, the shit got done, even if that shit was mostly orgies. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But yeah, it's it. I always like stories like this because I know next to nothing about paranormal history of New Zealand. So it's very interesting when you come across things like that because that's just a bit odd. Oh, yeah. It reminded me a little bit of a story from, I can't remember what episode it was. I want to say it was a Pennsylvania episode, or the story at least took place in Pennsylvania. But if some people had kind of gone out to the woods in their car to do, you know, whatever it is people go out in the woods to do in their Subarus with their mattresses in them, they had seen like a guy in a, a guy in a robe just standing in the road, and then a couple other guys in robes turned up. I mean, I, I don't necessarily believe, obviously I don't believe in Satan. I believe that there are a lot of folks who don't share that disbelief of mine. And whoever they're worshiping too, you know, it could be Toucan Sam for all I care. But if they're, if they're getting up to shit, I, you know, they, they believe it. And so they're maybe not all that safe to be around them. As we know, when you look at people who believe that Brian from Venus is, is talking to them, <laughs> yeah. there's enough, if you tell a convincing enough story, there's enough people who'll come follow you. And sometimes they'll follow you into the woods with flaming torches for whatever reason. Yet another reason to stay out of the woods, Paul. Well, we, we don't follow that advice anymore, do we? I'd like to think that was a one-off until the next time we're in the same place and we got a skin full of booze in us, but uh, <laughs> uh, let's, well, you know, we'll, we'll wait till that happens. As we venture into the haunted forest. Again. <laughs> Telling you, someone give us, a, give us a series. We will do it. <laughs> you hear me, Discovery Plus? Throw don't some bucks there. at us. Send me and Paul into haunted places. We will do dumb shit. Yeah, that's what we should call it. Don't go there. Okay? <laughs> Don't go there with Brennan Store and Paul Bestel. <laughs> or Paul Bestel and Brennan Store. I'm open either. I'm not I'm not hung up on it. <laughs> Call us Discovery. <laughs> you got everything else on there. I guess I shouldn't insult them if I want their money. <laughs> Maybe they're into the whole Findom thing, you know, if I'm mean to them, they'll pay me. Yeah, yeah. Well yeah. Or I'll just shoot the person you're supposed to love in the foot and you get a series. I don't know where this is coming from, but it sure took a dark turn. I'm just, I'm just saying, they're promoting a new show talking about uh, Megan Thee Stallion and, and her partner who shot her in the foot. Are they? they? They've done a series about it, because that's what the kind of content should be on Discovery Plus, apparently. Well, Discovery Plus, I'll forgive you if you pass. <laughs> Can't be Don't any worse go than that Bloody Mermaid documentary they did. Uh, I didn't see that one. I mean, it was, it was so shit, it was obvious it wasn't real. And yet they were going, well, you know, well, you know what? What, 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 what do you want me to know? The guy that's in it has been in lots of other fake documentaries. Yeah. So I don't think he's a scientist. I think he's an actor and not a very good one at that. I remember uh, back when we started Weird Together, the whole point was to try and drive engagement to the Ghost Guys YouTube channel. So we were actually going to be working, uh, looking at like paranormal documentaries. And then I realized a lot of them are shite. So we stopped and we started doing horror movies. Because we, we, for a while, we had, I had Discovery Plus, and I was using it to try and find stuff. 
and there was one, I think it was called Helltown. Oh, where, that's bollocks. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I realized it was bollocks pretty quick, but it really jumped out at me when the guy, the professor, who was talking, the professor of like whatever university, kept mispronouncing regional names. Yeah. And I'm not from that area, and I know how those things are pronounced, and he's getting them wrong, and I looked it up, and yeah, he's, he's an actor who plays professors in these things. And, oh, dude, just, no, just stop, stop. Look in the mirror and think about what you've done. Mm. Yes, and don't do it again. Yeah, please, until you hire us. <laughs> don't go there with Brennan Paul. <laughs> she never left. My brother Nate is a firefighter, and a few years ago, he responded to a call-out that he still talks about to this day. A neighbour had called in saying the vacant house for sale next door was on fire. The houses weren't too far apart, but not close enough that you could clearly see into the windows. The 911 dispatcher told the crew you could hear the man's wife in the background yelling about seeing someone in one of the upstairs windows. But rather than being panicked, she sounded angry about it. This woman was also saying something about all the trash making the fire worse. Nate and his co-workers arrived and they were able to put out the fire. He said there was no one inside, but it looked like there'd been a squatter living upstairs. So they believed that's who caused the fire. They also figured that the squatter had taken off after the neighbour's wife had spotted him. This isn't exactly a unique story, so the boys figured that was that. End of story, right? Nope. The damage to the house wasn't terrible, so it was eventually fixed and put back on the market. A young couple bought it, and after a few months, police were called there by the same neighbours who had reported the fire. This time, the man reported hearing screams coming from inside, and dispatch again heard who they assumed to be the man's wife yelling in the background. She was saying that the woman inside the house next door was puking everywhere. It ended up being a case of domestic violence, and things were handled accordingly. Apparently, one of the cops went over to talk to the neighbours about what they'd heard and questioned how his wife had seen the woman puking when that didn't happen near the windows, and the blinds were mostly shut. The neighbour looked confused and said he didn't have a wife, and there was no one else living there. The recording of the 911 call was played back, and sure as shit, a woman was heard in the background. This story got back to my brother and he did some digging. There was only one thing he could find that would give any sort of answer. The reason the house had been put up for sale prior to the fire was because the middle-aged woman who owned it had died there. He actually went back there to talk to the neighbour who confirmed the story and said that the previous resident was a very neat and tidy woman who was deeply particular about keeping her home clean. It sounds like she never really left. That's, that's very much a, a classic ghost story, which I always appreciate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially one joining in a 911 call. I kind of love that. She's just sort of flavor flaving the call, kind of hype manning. Yeah. Well, 911, if you're going to interrupt a call with a bit of freestyle rap in it would be that one <laughs> of course <laughs> yeah, well I love too that she's calling from the neighbor's house like she's kind of moved next door they're like like the odd couple or the was it the, was it Captain and Mrs. Muir you know the ghost sort of, of Mrs. Uh, Muir yeah 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 ghost of Mrs. Muir and you're just you're watching this house that you love just be treated like absolute hot trash mm. that, like, and no wonder 
I, I think maybe we, we have identified where poltergeists come from. Mm. But you could also say as well, was she not just talking all the time and it's only when the phone's in play that she could be heard? That's possible. Would it be interesting? I doubt he would have done, but if the neighbour made other calls and people said, who's that in the background? Who's that shouting about the dog pooing on the lawn? What's going on there? (laughs) I can't say much for sure in this world, Paul, but I can say that, God forbid, when the time comes for my mother to pass, she will be the one shouting on the phone in the (laughs) afterlife. (laughs) Every time someone parks in front of her house from now until the heat death of the universe, (laughs) she will shriek like a banshee. She's not even Irish. But she will, she will find a way to banshee will every time someone parks in her spot. She'll be the gremlin who messes with all the electric, I guarantee. I can see it now. Well, yeah. since we're here, I'll tell you about the other weird thing that happened. <laughs> so we got back from Revelstoke on Monday. And again, long drive, you know, whatever. So last night, no, was it? No, it was Tuesday night. It was Tuesday night. We were laying on the couch watching, uh, I think we were watching a movie. Uh, yeah, we were watching Strays, that adorable, incredibly profane movie about the talking dogs, which I, we, I, we both loved. We actually bought it as soon as it came out on video on demand because we just, just loved it. We're sitting there watching this goofy movie, having a laugh. And Nick has, there's no way to sound this without it sounding silly. She has a rain stick. It's some kind of indigenous art. I don't know specifically where. I want to see Australia, but I don't know. But oh, it, it's oh, yeah. You mean like, like a wooden... to, to bring, bring on rains if they need them? Maybe it's a big, long wooden tube with beads in it, and you turn it, and it sounds like rain. Yeah. So the beads run from one end to the other, and it, it sounds like rain. It's, it's, it's yeah. quite a nice sound. So she loves that kind of stuff. So we, we have it, and, we, and we've had one for probably 10 years, and it's just leaned mm. up against the wall in the, the hallway. And periodically, you know, if there's subtle vibration, one or two of the beads that's still left at the top, will kind of tick down and you, it'll, it'll be like sudden, but it's one or two beads, right? You think, okay, so a couple of beads didn't make it all the way down the first time. That's not uncommon. So we're sitting there watching this movie and all of a sudden this, there's this rushing sound and we can't figure out where, where it's coming from. And then we both realize it's the rain stick, but it's not one or two beads. It's like someone turned it upside down and the entire contents were running from one side to the other. It took a while. And we looked at each other and said, what, what is happening? And I, we both identified it was a rain stick. We got up and looked at it. It was in exactly the same position it always had been, but we couldn't figure it out because if, if things had been stuck in the top, it, I mean, they would have fallen out by now. Right. And again, it, we've heard things fall out. It's usually like one or two beads, but this was like someone had freshly turned it over for a good 25 seconds. I tried whapping it on the top of it just to see maybe we could reproduce it. Maybe, you know. So I flipped it over again, laid it down and hit it on the top. And as soon as it had vacated all the beads from turning over, I could at most get one or two noises out of hitting it on the top. And I was starting to hit it pretty hard to see if I could make it make the noise. We still have no idea why that was happening or how that happened because it doesn't make any sense. Again, if you flip it over, the beads immediately fall to the bottom. Again, bar one or two that might get shaken loose if you're, you know, depending on what angle it's at, but there's no way that it made as much sound as it did without being turned over, which it could not have been because both cats were on the other side of the room. We were sitting on stationary on the chair and the stick is right next to a, a, a chime we have. 
like a long table chime. And so usually if I walk past the chime, or if anyone walks past the chime, it jingles just a little bit. Hmm. So if there had been like significant movement, the chime would have jingled, but hmm. it didn't. So we have this mystery of the rain stick that we just cannot figure out. It was the weirdest goddamn thing. Hmm. And how long was this after you returned? The next day, I think. It, we, I see, we got back Monday. I think it was Tuesday night this happened. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was odd. And then, actually, another weird thing, and then we'll go to the next story. <laughs> I, I just bought my flight for Ontario. I'd never flown with um, Flair Airlines before. Uh, they're a low-cost carrier here in, in BC or in Canada. So I, I registered for an account, you know, put in my name, all that jazz. Mm-hmm. And I, when the confirmation email came, it was addressed to Nicola, which mm. is my wife's full name. I didn't put her name anywhere in the account. And when you log into the account, it's my <laughs> name on everything. It's Brennan. So w- where the hell did Nicola come from? <laughs> well, I, I had somebody send me a message about something similar to that the other day. They bought a book about the Pascagoula incident, second hand, great condition. And when the book arrived, inside was a message to Paul. No shit. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what was the message? Just to Paul. Oh, All just best. to Paul. Philip. Wow. I've not given that book up. But no, the chances of, course, of somebody I... listening to the show to then get the book to find it addressed to me. Yeah. Or to Paul. Not, you know. To no Paul, regardless. Yeah. Holy shit. They just, they just thought they'd, they'd mention it. I just uh, made me chuckle. Things like that make me laugh all the time. It's a weird world, my friend. It is. Our only possible recourse is to be weirder still. The Haunted Firehouse. My dad is a career firefighter, and I grew up in and around the firehouse. One of the stations in the town my dad works in is, according to my dad and just about every firefighter that's been in the station for a night or two, extremely haunted. The first story is from my dad, who is not one to be easily scared. The crew had returned from a late night run about three in the morning, and dad went into the computer room to write up the run report. He told me he felt this feeling like somebody was behind him, so he turned around in his chair and saw a man in a black top hat standing outside the window. The man turned and walked towards the front door. Thinking the man was there because it's technically designated a safe place, my dad jumped up and ran to the front door to find the guy. He was gone. But as Dad went to walk back inside, the man appeared from around the corner and went through the front door of the station. He didn't open the door, which was locked and required a numerical code to open. He just walked through it and disappeared. My dad said he immediately went up to the bunk room and finished the report in the morning because he was just so freaked out. The next story comes from the medic my dad worked with. One night she was watching a horror movie with my dad at the station. At one of the jump scares, they both heard the front door get kicked and hit the inside wall, then slam shut. The medic, thinking my dad was playing a trick on her, turned to yell at him, only to see he was also white as a sheet. Both freaked out at this point, they hopped up to see if one of the other guys was fucking with them. My dad went to check the door, the medic went upstairs to see if anyone was missing. Everyone was upstairs asking who the hell had slammed the door. My dad came upstairs with no explanation as to how the hell that had happened. The next story comes from the battalion chief, who was at the time a lieutenant. This guy is scary, huge, and 100% no-nonsense. He also absolutely refused to believe any ghost stories from this station. 
So the guys dared him to stay downstairs until like 2 a.m. He did, and nothing out of the ordinary happened, which he felt validated his skepticism. Finally, 2 a.m. came around and he got up, turned off the TV, turned off the lights, got up to the second step, and heard a woman whisper in his ear, He's finally going to bed. Everybody else was in bed, and the only female on the department at the time was not on shift. The guy said they thought he was going to collapse from fright when he got to the top of the stairs. It took 20 minutes to calm him down so they could get the story out of him. He said he felt the breath from the woman speaking in his ear. He still barely talks about it, and if he does, he gets visibly freaked out. But by far the most interesting story from the station is this one. Each shift has their own refrigerator, and they get locked as each shift leaves because, well, firefighters steal food from each other. C-Shift was known to steal food constantly. They'd eat entirely from the other two shifts' fridges, forcing A-Shift and B-Shift to constantly go grocery shopping. Well, apparently the entity, ghost, or whatever you want to call it, got tired of C-Shift stealing everyone's food, and one morning when A-Shift came in to relieve C-Shift, they found C-Shift's refrigerator and freezer wide open with all of the food in the trash can. No one is quite sure how it happened, but both shifts swear on it. Other stuff would happen, pass devices would go off in the middle of the night for no reason, boots would be pulled out of bunker pants, which is infuriating to firefighters, they could hear the workout equipment being used at all hours, occasionally see a man standing in the base staring at the trucks, only for him to disappear. Weird stuff, like that. It's a really cool firehouse, but it certainly has that feeling like you're not alone. I don't think the ghost had much to do with fucking up Sea Shift's fridge. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but either way, they deserved it. Yeah, that sounds like some firehouse justice. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, that's the spirit of vengeance, is what that is. Definitely. <laughs> but the other stuff is interesting, and, and actually kind of reminds me, um, you know, there was a period where I was intending to work on a book about first responders, and I just never did for various reasons. I started, oh, that's not true, I started on it, and then I just had too much shit going on at the time, I just kind of left it. And actually, I think that book might get written at some point. I think someone else is working on it. But one guy I spoke to, he was a firefighter in Calgary. And he had the same feeling. He had, he was, uh, you know, he'd be writing up reports or working at night. And you'd hear people walking outside. You'd hear uh, noises. Things would move in the bunkhouse. And so it, it's just sort of like, I don't know if it's a firehouse thing or if just because there are always people in the building, you notice it more. Yeah. I like a haunted firehouse. In fact... Here in Sheffield, our old fire station is now a museum. Okay. And it was derelict for decades, but it was, uh, it was bought by the uh, emergency services to act as a, as a museum. And since it opened, it has been haunted. Though strangely, the ghost that lives there is supposed to be dressed as a sailor. It seems lost or looking for a good time, depending. Now, that's the thing. So at first, when it started being reported, people were sort of saying, oh, people are seeing a sailor. Until some archivists did some digging and noticed that when the fire station opened in the early 1800s, firemen's uniforms in those days were modelled on sailors. Oh, shit. So it would seem that what people are actually seeing is an old fireman from that period whose clothing reminded people of something else, but it's what he would have been wearing at that particular era. And now you can actually do an all-night ghost hunt there. They do them fairly regularly at the museum. Oh, cool. Are, are you, is that something you would try at some point? It depends. The price fluctuates wildly. 
Oh, really? Yes. I've seen it advertised at £25, and I've seen it advertised for considerably more. More than 25 oh, Unless they're doing a catered meal or something, and you get, you know, a handy or, or something like that. I, I'm not paying more than 25 No. No. So... Uh, who knows? It, it, it's one of those. It's it's now because it's become popular. It's all, obviously the price has gone up. Good lord! Of course, it's like storm watching in Tofino. <laughs> as soon as it became popular, it was all fucked up. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things. You would think, well, why would a firehouse be haunted? Because if if they they dealt with anything, the tragedies or the deaths would occur outside of the firehouse, unless, of course, it was a fireman or a fire person or firewoman who had died on duty and was tethered to where they bunked down, perhaps? I was thinking that. What if, you know, obviously when you work in extreme situations, you're around death quite a bit, it becomes relatively commonplace. Mm. And I wonder if it's not possible that people who are experiencing unexpected or traumatic or, or violent death, if they attach to first responders because they're there. Mm. And maybe they just follow them back to the, the firehouse and that's where they stay. You know, yeah. they just keep hanging around because it's someplace stable and safe and this is what they know. I mean, who knows? Like, obviously, we're all always speculating with this shit, but maybe your your memory of the outside world shrinks. Mm. And so you end up after a while, this is, this is all you know is this firehouse. Yeah. And as well in Sheffield, you would expect them to be seen in other places because obviously during the, the Blitz of 1940, we lost several firemen that night with buildings collapsing on them and, and some were killed. Oh, okay. A couple of fire trucks were actually hit by German bombs. Um, so uh, you would expect them to be wandering around the town rather than something not connected with that particular event haunting the old firehouse. But Sheffield's very good. I've lived in Sheffield uh, several decades now. And we are currently on our third fire station since I've lived here. They 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 oh. like to build one every sort of fifteen years because they built one and go, oh, it's brilliant, and then realised that where they built it, it was smack in the middle of town, so it was adding like twenty minutes to journeys because the fire <laughs> just couldn't get out. Oh, so they had to come course. through the town centre traffic at rush. So if right. you had a fire at rush hour, hard lines. Yikes. I, I, I wonder if maybe they built it out of shitty concrete like everything else. <laughs> they probably did, but it's fallen <laughs> yeah, down there. Okay. So it doesn't rain. Yeah. I'm aware of, now I'm aware of four separate buildings that have been fire stations in Sheffield. One is obviously the, the current one, which is easier to, to, to get out to help people. But um, the two, other two were, in the, two were in the city centre and one's the other, opposite side of town. I love that your first word of choice there was escape. You stopped short of saying it, but it was you know, easier to escape. <laughs> and I think given what we've just read, that is the appropriate term. Well, perhaps. Perhaps my mind was, was searching for the correct word in that situation. See Discovery Plus. We're always thinking. <laughs> Legs. Back when I was a captain in the fire department, we responded to a house fire early in the morning. When we arrived, the roof was breached and flames had taken out two windows on the second floor of a split-level home. We made entry, and even though the roof was breached, the thermocline was about two feet off the first floor. We wouldn't have gone in at all, but a child was missing, and the father and mother had got out of the house, but they couldn't get to their daughter's room. The father was being treated for burns on his hands and forearms that he had tried to go in after her. Suffice to say, they were frantic. 
They told us that her room was on the second floor, second door on the right. Simple enough. We made entry, and the stairs faced the door. Rapid bursts from the TFT to the ceiling brought the smoke level up to about four feet from the floor. That's when my handline man and I saw something that neither of us could explain. I saw motion to my left on the main floor. Someone was walking around downstairs. I pointed it to my handline man and he saw it too. We couldn't see a body as the person was in the smoke, but we could see the legs and the feet clearly. It looked to be a man wearing olive green trousers and leather shoes. I wouldn't say that the legs were dancing, but they were certainly moving in a way to get our attention. We redirected back down the stairs and see the legs go into a door on the right-hand side of the small hallway. We both saw the legs go into that room. We get down the hallway and the door is closed. Feeling the door, there weren't flames behind it and we made entry to discover that we were in a bathroom. The light was on and curled up in the bathtub was the little girl. There was no one else in the room with her. We broke out the window and got her to a second crew keeping the house next door from catching fire. We looked around the bathroom again and couldn't find the man we'd both seen going into there. There was nowhere for him to hide in there. We withdrew from the house and did exposure control as the house was a complete loss, with the fire already ingressing into the living room. The parents had gone with their daughter to the hospital where she was checked and cleared to go later that morning and the man suffered only first and small second-degree burns to his hands and forearms. The family stopped by the station and wanted to thank us for saving their daughter, and they asked us how we knew to check the first-floor bathroom, and I asked them if they knew anything about a man in olive-green trousers and leather shoes. The man pulled out his phone after a minute of thinking and showed us a picture of two old men standing in a lawn. One of the men was clearly wearing olive green trousers and those leather shoes. The man we had seen on the first floor had passed away in 1976 and was the man's father. The little girl's grandfather had showed us where she was. We were all speechless. It's the only time I've ever seen a ghost during a response. That's incredible. I love a story like that. Yeah, that's, it's stuff like that, man, that, that, that gives, it gives me hope. For all this stuff, because yeah. I say there's like it's spooky and scary, you know, because it, it runs counter to our understanding of natural laws. But that just, yeah, you see, yeah, especially you know having all the family time recently, and, and you know it was really great fun. But it was you know this noticeable absence of some people who've long since passed on. So the mm. idea that they could still be out there somewhere is is a reassuring one. Do you think you know fire's not my strong point? Thankfully, do you think that it manifested its legs because the smoke was above it, so that would have been it had to be something eye-catching for to draw the firefighters' attention. I mean, it makes as much sense as anything. It's been a while since I've seen Backdraft, so I'm not too sure how <laughs> fires work. It still holds up, I'll, I'll tell you. Backdraft 2, not so much. I, I'm sure you're shocked. Shot 20, what, 25 <laughs> years after the fact in Romania? <laughs> mm, no. Uh, can't be any worse than Robert the Doll. That's a bold statement. <laughs> or is that a movie about Robert the Doll? That's a movie about Robert the Doll that's clearly filmed somewhere in Eastern Europe, featuring people who seem to have never acted before. The Doll's one of the best performances in it. It <laughs> fucking move. It was so bad, Julie watched it. I, I haven't watched it. And Julie said, go and look at this bit. 
it's hilarious. And it was a bit where a woman was like looking through a window at Robert the doll and some other dolls like being Dolly or whatever the haunted dolls do. And then she kind of went like that behind the window. It was, it was hilarious. Honestly, I've seen Fruit perform better on film. <laughs> That's that's one of the things about, you know, there's so many movies coming out now and TV shows, more people than ever are employed in the entertainment industry. It's just, well, one, they're paid poverty wages. And two, that means maybe some folks who were needed a little more time in community theater have been bumped up to the, uh, I won't say major leagues, but you know, triple like, uh, A ball, you know, maybe triple mm. A. They're getting paid to play, but not very much. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, a life-saving ghost. We need more stories like that. Yeah. No, you're not kidding. Just to balance out all the hope of that, though, I was looking at uh, a thread of, of these stories while you were reading, and I found one that just is, you know, deeply un... Well, not unpleasant, but it's, it's creepy. And, and since we're getting towards the end of the show, I thought, why not share a creepy story now? Because again, you know, we had a moment of levity and happiness. Let's, let's stomp all over that. <laughs> My first job out of EMT school was working as an interfacility transport technician, taking people from one hospital to another or to nursing homes and hospice centers. There is one single transport from that time in my life which is burned into my memory. It is significant not because of an unusual medical condition or that it was the first time I gave a specific medication, but because of the patient and his story. We were dispatched to transfer a patient who was brought to the local ED by EMS after suffering a cardiac arrest. He was resuscitated after reaching the hospital and admitted to the ICU. However, it was determined that he needed procedures which were not available at the local hospital. When I met the patient, he looked very healthy given the circumstances and was, by my judgment, physically and mentally fit. During the transport, he told me that while he was at home and in cardiac arrest, he floated out of his body and was able to watch and describe the efforts of the paramedics. He continued to watch as the paramedics transported him to the hospital and he re-entered his body as he was resuscitated. His description of the medical procedures he underwent were accurate. However, the most chilling part of his story was that as he floated above his body, he could see a black vortex hovering above him. He said that this was a portal to hell where he was destined to go had he not re-entered his body. The gentleman stated he had a new outlook on life and that he needed to make major changes to avoid spending his afterlife in misery. He was extremely sincere and somber as he explained all this to me, and a chill certainly went down my spine as he recounted his story. I do not know what happened to this man or how his life turned out, but I do know he had a powerful experience which changed his life. And so just before you get all misty about uh, Granddad coming back, there's someone who was almost dragged to hell. Well, with a case like that, there's only one person you can call. Ghostbusters? No, if it's, uh, if it's a portal to hell, there's probably a demon there. Oh, oh, oh. Is That's it... right, a demonologist. That's who you call. Who did you think I meant? <laughs> uh, it's currently not the one person I'd like to see pushed into a portal to hell. <laughs> Well, you've got to consider, if we wish to think about this on a deeper level, that if somebody spent their lifetime running around shouting at ghosts and saying that they're all horrible, they've really got to hope there isn't an afterlife, because I would imagine there's going to be quite a few spirits hanging about waiting for that chump to turn up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, he's getting bummed by the stiff off Marshmallow Man. That's happening. Walter Peck got it easy. That's it. Yeah. No, he, he escaped. Obviously, we did the ad for Duncan uh, Ralston a while back for his new book, uh, Try Not to Die at Ghostland. And he yeah. sent us over an EPUB of the Ghostland trilogy, which is massive. Mm. It's like a thousand pages. It's huge. So I've been slowly picking my way through it. 
I will say that, you know, the, the, I've just about reached the point now where you know, the Jurassic Park moment where everything goes haywire. And um, one, boy, what a terrible idea, having a, a park full of murderous ghosts being held in place by the most thinnest of technological filament. But also, I just sort of had this kind of maybe not very kind moment where I was imagining what would have happened if, if he was in the park at Ghostland when it all went bad and just watching him get chased around and dragged down to hell in the end. It was, it was a mm. pleasant thought. Hmm. I try to not, not sully my mind with such paranormal trivialities, Brennan. You need to let go. <laughs> I've broken that cycle of where it just kept appearing on my TV. That's all I've got. To, I don't know what was going on there, but I'm free of it now. When I was in England, we ended up watching an ep- the Skinwalker Ranch episode because Nick had seen it. Her mom had PVR'd it, and they watched it when I was away. So when I got back, we, Nick and I watched it together. And oh, Lord, I've never wanted a desert to take a man so badly. This is why you need to give us a show, Discovery Plus. We could make it so much better. We will be poisoned in the desert in a much more believable fashion. I don't know. I saw a brilliant one the other day where um, I'll not name the show because it, it, it's, um, it, gi- it gives me small doses of pleasure uh, along with large amounts of shaking my head. And uh, the climax of this particular episode was that um, the resident psychic who has recently returned to British television after, I would not know if it was a self-decided absence or people thought they needed to give him a rest. Um, they'd done some research and said, oh, this terrible thing had happened and this is what happened and, what, what, and, and whatever and all this. As though this was it. And then at the end, this psychic told exactly the same story, but, but in, in the manner as though he'd been possessed by this person. Oh, boy. And simply repeated what had earlier been said by the historian as though this was like groundbreaking contact and proof that he was indeed in touch with such a spirit. Woof. It was laughable. Well, what does it say? You're never going to go broke underestimating the taste of the public. I think they're close to the knuckle on this one. (laughs) I want to come see you. I was a 911 dispatcher slash communications officer for a rural sheriff's department. Normally what happens when we get a call on 911 is our system would populate the screen with a number and address, though sometimes those weren't always accurate or correct. This was especially an issue if the caller had used a cell phone, so we would always verify the address with the reporting party before sending out any units. Still, we could tell based on the first three numbers if it was a landline, which usually had the correct address. One night I was working a graveyard shift, and I was by myself. I got a 911 call, and oddly it didn't populate a phone number at all, but it did populate an address into our CAD, computer-aided dispatch, system. When I answered, 911, what is the address of your emergency? All I heard in response at first was a strange, garbled, cracking and hissing sound and what I can only describe as guttural noises that didn't quite sound electronic, but also didn't sound quite human either. It wasn't like the typical kind you hear from a bad connection. If I had to describe it, it sounded almost organic. I asked again, 911, what is your emergency? And after another moment of crackling and hissing, I heard a faraway voice that sounded like a child, saying, Hi. The child sounded very young, like maybe three or four years old. I switched into a more comforting tone to try and find out what was wrong. After all, calls dealing with children can be very difficult to get correct information and location due to their age and the potential trauma they've witnessed. I tried to ask the child what was wrong, where they were at, if they knew what their phone number was, a name, anything. Most questions, a kid replied with just childish noises like they were thinking and trailed off or 
didn't respond at all. I was getting ready to send out some units for a check at the address while still trying to get information from the child, and while I was radioing out some officers, I heard the little voice on the line say to me, Don't send someone. I want to come see you. This is where it started to get eerie. I hadn't told the child yet I was sending police officers, as I had only just dispatched out a unit not even two seconds before they said that. I told the kid to stay on the line with me until the officer got to them, which was especially important since there was no callback number, no call history from that address, and I had no idea what was going on because the child wouldn't tell me or even respond to my questions. I started giving the child some direction, telling them an officer would be there soon and that he would help the kid. The child said, I want to see you, and the line went dead. Normally, we would call them back. I tried to do the automatic callback, but as it had picked up no number, this didn't seem to work. My officer got to the scene a few minutes later and radioed me to verify the address in the street, so I gave it again. He called me on his cell phone and told me that this particular street was a private road that only had two homes, one that belonged to a rancher and one that belonged to a retired couple in their 70s. Neither had any children located within their homes or knew anyone local who had children. The address that populated the system didn't even exist. Because it was a child, my officer and a few more did some patrol in that area and some surrounding areas, but found nothing. It was one of the strangest calls I've ever taken, and I still think about it. I'm a strong believer in the paranormal, but having worked in law enforcement, I always approach it with a skeptical eye. There was just something unnatural about that whole call. Sounds I've never heard before on the line and never heard in any situation since. If it was really paranormal or not, I can't say. And Paul, this kind of reminds me of something Nick and I were talking about when we watched that Netflix show Encounters, when they talk about the pilot in Stephenville, Texas, who saw the light in the sky and really became obsessed by it. And you and I, I think, just talked about that on an episode, how it's, it's so easy for that to happen. For, you know, if this is your only experience with these kinds of things, it, it so upends your notion of how the world works that it's, it's really easy for it to kind of freak you out and, and just become this thing around which you start building an entirely new worldview. Yeah, very much so. I suppose it, it just changes your, your whole outlook on life. As we've mentioned on, on previous shows, you know, some of the people who have had encounters with large hairy cryptids in certain parts of North America completely change their lives. And, so, and quite a lot of time, not for the better. Oh, yeah. Yeah, is that's it. They're, they're now scared of the woods. Yeah. So I would imagine anything that... I mean, that's, the, I mean, that's one of the things why sometimes people just don't want to be open to the concept of it because it challenges everything they think they know about the world around them. And if that's wrong, what else don't they know? And some people yeah. just cannot handle that. Even in normal, in normal life, some people just try to move through life oblivious to all kinds of interruptions or problems or, or people turn a blind, blind eye to domestic abuse or, or cheating or things like that because they don't want to face reality. Wherever that reality is, they don't want to face it. They just want to carry on on what they believe is happening. As far as they're concerned, nothing is happening outside of those lanes. I tell you, man, I wish I had that ability. I wish I could ignore reality. <laughs> Me, Tony Stark, and Thanos, cursed by knowledge. <laughs> Just cannot stop. Every moment is like, well, this is going to hell in a handbasket. Let's extrapolate this out. And now I will not be sleeping again tonight. I envy the ignorant man. Yeah, I remember being a kid, and I used to, I used to be, well, I still am, fascinated by space. And then you get to a certain age, and you start thinking, 
Okay. So, so, where's the edge of it? Where's the end of it? Everything's got an end. Surely. Has it not? When you try and grapple with that, then you start thinking, well, what was, what was there before the Big Bang? It can't be nothing. There has to be something. Where, where does it begin? Where does it end? Yeah. Well, it's like that question of, you know, people say you, you didn't know you were, you, before, you didn't know you were not here before you were born. So you're not going to notice that you're not here when you die. You know, it just, you go away. And I think about that, you know, in regard to the, like the universe, you know, they say, well, some people say, well, there's just nothing before that, but we don't have any concept of nothing. Like it, it's just so what started the nothing, there had to be something in the nothing in order for there to be something in the first place. Mm. And I sometimes apply that to the life after death thing, mm. you know, like there, there was something, you know, I mean, you were not aware of it, but you know, you were created. And like kind of my patented line for one of my parties is, I mean, I think that if there is a life after this one, it is incomprehensible to us now as this one was to us in the womb. Mm. You know, it's just going to be completely outside our, our realm of understanding. But I, I don't necessarily think the, you know, I wasn't aware before I was gone, before I was here and I won't be aware after. I don't, I don't know that that necessarily stands up. No, it certainly doesn't agree with the Buddhist philosophy of life either. Which is? Reincarnation. We're all reincarnated. Constance, right. Constantly. But we can be anything as long as it's a living entity. Well, like I've said before, I've sure met some people who I think were, uh, were given the, uh, the nightclub pass from the bouncer to be go from uh, grasshoppers to people <laughs> and really should have had a few more steps in between. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll never deny another person's essential humanity, but there are times where I'm dealing with people and I think, so you're a grasshopper in human form. There is nothing happening behind those eyes. Maybe it's a punishment. Maybe that's a grasshopper hell. Oh, now that makes sense. See? Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, you, that really did blow my mind. Holy <laughs> shit. I mean, that, that makes so much sense. <laughs> did you like hopping around in fields and rubbing your legs together in order to get laid? Yeah? Well, now you have to pay rent. <laughs> Take that, you little green bastard. <laughs> yep. And if you do well in life, then you, you become a capybara. Oh, God. I'm, I tell you, man, I'm aiming for it. I'm trying. I figure calling people bastards isn't going to help. But if that's where I get to go, I will do whatever I have to. Because I love those goddamn things so much. I could stare at... I, I've met one capybara in real life, and I was just besotted. I could have laid next to it in the grass and looked at it all day. Just one of the greatest moments of my life. I mean, I'm always intrigued, though not overly convinced, by children who talk about past lives more than adult because I, I think sometimes it can seem very compelling because we believe in the innocence of children and their lack of knowledge that if a four or five year old starts telling you about how they died in the war you begin to think well how does that child know about war or whatever and we sometimes don't give thoughts to the surroundings and the social enrichment that a child may accept or be involved in that we're unaware of and we therefore just presume that this child can't possibly know anything about such things and therefore it must be true. However, it's also a very, um, it seems to be a, a, a bit of a stretch sometimes as well that if, you know, a five-year-old's telling you about how he was flying a Messerschmitt and he was shot down a, over, over Dover, uh, you know, and he was shot six times and, and uh, his co-pilot helmet died instantly and he died because he parachuted out and drowned in the sea 
that you, you kind of think, well, where are we going to go? And I think these are the kind of stories that sometimes they adapt and they morph as the stories are told. But there'll always be ones that make you really scratch your head and think, is there more to that than meets the eye? Yeah. I don't think you can dismiss all of them. And if not, even if, no. as, as with anything, it only takes one paranormal encounter to be proven true. It only takes one Bigfoot encounter to prove it exists. It only takes one UFO to crash into a building to prove they're here. That's all it takes is one. So who am I to dismiss it all out of hand? I've, I'm, I'm not arrogant enough to perceive that I know the truth of any of that, apart from Bigfoot. Oh, yeah, no, naturally. You know, because he's living in England, <laughs> hanging out with Dogman, looking through windows. <laughs> Playing peekaboo. Paranormal peekaboo. <laughs> uh, uh, just before we go, actually, I just want to tell you something real quick. So I mentioned on the end of Talk Spooky that uh, someone had contacted me in Revelstoke and wanted to show me Creepfest Road. Um, uh, and, and I know the guy. He's this guy named Jeff. Uh, actually, him and my Uncle Rob listen to the show, so hi, guys. Hello. But... Yeah, he, I talked to him on the phone yesterday, and he was telling me a little bit about it. And it's interesting. It's, it's in the woods, uh, near where there used to be a bunch of old-growth forest that was logged. So he said, you've got these tree, tree stumps, which are like six feet across, just huge old forest. But he said that um, whenever he goes out that way, it's, he feels like, like something, uh, there are a lot of eyes on him, which I thought was really interesting. And he said that basically it was a really badly treated area, so badly that they've kind of disrupted the road so you can't get out there anymore because people were just, just yeah, it was, it was a mess. Between trash, I think he said people used to go shooting out there, so a lot of old shells. But he said that even walking parallel roads with his dog, the dog doesn't, doesn't particularly enjoy it. And the whole thing just sounds very nature spirity to me. And so um, there is a chance that we might be able to organize an investigation of that road. Uh, with someone who is kind of semi-local to the area. You know who I'm talking about. I won't say who it is until it's all locked in. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I'm very curious to see if anything comes of that, because, again, I'm always... I mean, this is more relevant to the previous episode where we talked about spirits of the earth, but nature spirits, I always, it's always very compelling to me. Mm. I'd take some peanut butter just in case it's not a nature spirit. Always a good idea. Always a good idea to bring some peanut butter with you. Yes. If you're hungry, you got to fend off someone who's got a peanut allergy. It has many uses. Yeah. And, and as I always say, in, in ex- investigations like that, you only have to be not the slowest person. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Unless, of course, you're riding a bike and you get blindsided by something running out of the woods to the side of you. That's very specific. Mm. Sorry, I watched Exists again the other day. Oh, okay. There we go. And, yep. and had a sleepless night. <laughs> I do love that movie. Shits me up. I don't know why I keep watching it. Because it shits you up, that's why. <laughs> that's why we watch these things. <laughs> yes, and I'll be watching it again as soon as October da- dawns. I've already started building my, my playlist for, for this year. Oh, nice. I'm really stoked because Vinegar Syndrome just announced they're doing a 4K restoration of the, the first three Prophecy movies. And, I mean, the, the second and third, not great. But the first one, I think, is an unsung masterpiece of 90s horror. And it's only been available in kind of not great DVD uh, rips. So I'm, or, or even like DVD transfers on streaming services. So I'm very excited because The Prophecy is one of my favorite horror movies. Mm. Um, always disturbed me when, even when I was a kid. Uh, and for you folks who haven't seen it, check it out. Uh, the Prophecy is a ton of fun. Stars Christopher Walken as the Archangel Michael, or uh, Gabriel rather. It was written and directed by Gregory Wyden, who wrote Backdraft, which we talked about earlier, <laughs> and who of course wrote and directed Highlander. 
Oh, sorry, wrote wrote Highlander. He wrote Highlander. Russell Mulcahy directed yes, Highlander. Durant, wrote Duran's Highlander. director directed Highlander. Yeah, yeah. I actually just watched um this. We're way off the rails here, but I just watched Russell Mulcahy's Resurrection mm. with Christopher Lambert and uh, Leland Orser. Mm. It's actually it's pretty solid. It's it kind of came in that wave of late '90s saw um seven ripoffs, mm. but it was actually pretty good mm. considering what they had to work with. Yeah. yeah, Christopher Lambert's not that bad. I will always watch Christopher Lambert. That guy, it's it's a shame he doesn't do much stuff anymore, but I've always got time for Mr. Lambert. Yes. Apparently one of the nicest men in, in the industry as well. Very generous. Really? Yeah, very generous kind of. I know, was it Mortal Kombat? Yep. And it was done on a shoestring and Lambert was there for about a week and they were, they were, they'd run out of money. They were all skint and everybody was like fighting over food and stuff. And he just got loads of stuff flown in for everybody and treated them all to like banquets and paid for everything and made sure everybody was fed and watered and looked after and all covered and dealt with and just treated them, made them all feel like they were the kings, whereas they were all expecting him to be the king. Oh, no kid. And uh, he just blew them away with his kindness and his generosity. Everybody, nobody had a bad word to say about him at all. Man, that is cool. You know, it's so often the opposite, you hear the opposite, right? Yeah. But that is, that is great. Yeah, your big stars shacked up in a trailer doing 10 gram of coke a day and won't even come outside <laughs> for Kylie Minogue. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that has been uh, First Responders versus the Paranormal 2. Uh, if you are a first responder, let us know. Send us your story. We'd love to do another volume. Again, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Thank you to the two listeners who did send stories in. We hope you send some more. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now, and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it, and make a phone call, or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123. Or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, 
There are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks as always to the rest of the Ghost Story Guys family. Luke Greensmith helps us find stories. He's also the host of the Luke Lore podcast. Sarah Kent runs our Reddit for us. Tanya Downing helps with editing. Jerry Smith is our composer. Adam Lynch does all our video editing. Joseph Camo manages our YouTube presence. And of course, I am joined by my friend and co-host, the one, the only, the inimitable Paul Bestel, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? I'm delighted to finally welcome the author and researcher John Olson, who makes his first appearance on Mysteries and Monsters on this week's show as we dive into his latest book and talk about some strange things. We've got haunted cars, haunted students, Bigfoot, and even a Wendigo. Oh, very cool. Where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms and where all good and bad podcasts live. All right. I'm Largely the Truth on Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, and Letterboxd. You can also find me on Twitter. I don't use it anymore, but my account is there if you want to follow me. Please make sure to check out my other show, Weird Together. That's a film where we review independent horror movies. We being myself and Joseph Camo, who, as I mentioned, also manages the Ghost Story Guys YouTube. The show is available everywhere podcasts live. You can also find us on YouTube. There'll be a link in the show notes. And our most recent episode, we reviewed the film Moon Garden, which was actually recommended by Luke. Really beautiful movie about a young girl who um, suffers an injury and has to kind of journey across this mental dreamscape in order to find her way out back to her family. Very beautiful, very heartbreaking film. I don't mind telling you, Paul, I teared up a few times. So, uh, yeah, if you get a chance, check out Moon Garden and especially listen to our review of it on Weird Together. And again, that's Weird Together everywhere. Fine podcast live. And Paul, do you have any appearances coming up? I will be making an appearance on a show that I can't mention just yet, um, but it may surprise a few people and it's a little bit daunting. Okay. Mm. Can you tell me off air? Yes, I will. Okay. Ooh, very I'm recording it on Halloween as well. Oh, no shit. Yeah, it's only a small segment. I just recorded a spot on the Business Development Podcast, I think it's called, talking about uh, both telling ghost stories and talking about the business of of being an independent author. So that should be out, I think, sometime soon. Uh, Very cool conversation, really enjoyed myself. And I think that's that's it for appearances for the time being. Uh, Possibly some other stuff coming down the pipe, but if it happens, I'll let everyone know. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. Makes us feel good, helps bump the numbers. A kind review is always appreciated as well. As I mentioned before, you can find us on YouTube. There'll be a link in the show notes. We post video versions of some of our stories there. Edited, of course, by Adam Lynch of the Weekly Creep podcast. We're on Instagram as The Ghost Story Guys. We're on Facebook as Ghost Story Guys. And we also have a group called Ghost Story Guys Finally Made a Group. Again, you'll find links to all of those in the full show notes, which you can find at ghoststoryguys.com. At ghoststoryguys.com, you'll also find links to buy merch. We have all kinds of cool stuff, including our inimitable Paul Bestel design, which is uh, hot off the presses and possibly the most favorite thing I've ever sold on this show. (laughs) 
Julie keeps showing her work colleagues it, saying, I can't believe this, and laughing. So I don't know what that says. <laughs> Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music. Find more from him by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you stream your tunes or by going to nightharvestrecordings.com. Our composer is Jerry Smith. Jerry is a film journalist and musician based out of Central California. You can find his projects streaming as Rainy Days for Ghosts and Street Witch, or by heading as well to nightharvestrecordings.com. I guess that's going to do it. Well, we'll be back next week, but until then, into the darkness we go. If you want to judge the content of somebody's paranormal character, if they give more than three seconds of their time ever again to believing anything happened at Amityville, you should shun them. <laughs> no argument here. Forever. People can't even know what contrails are. I keep calling them chemtrails. Dropping iron nitrate into his eyes from the sky. If they're dropping the iron, how come you need to take some? That doesn't make any sense. Checkmate. <laughs> it's to counterbalance the fluoride. Oh, in the water. God. All right, Discovery. Plus, I think we've done enough of an audition for you. <laughs> we are right up your alley, clearly. Call us. Hang on. Theo is apparently eating something. Naturally. <laughs> <laughs>